country and the southern part of the continent of Africa. Some of us in here got to meet Newton a couple years ago over Zoom or FaceTime, whatever that was, and we've been partnering with Newton's ministry there over the last couple years. He's in town, I think mainly, but other things like this morning here, thank goodness, for the pastor's conference, the shepherd's conference in Sun Valley at MacArthur's Church coming up this week. And so I've asked uh, Newton first if he'll share a little bit about himself so you can become more familiar with who he is, and then, more importantly, to crack open the Word of God, the Holy Scripture, and preach to our souls. So Newton, if you would, please come and be faithful to the text, brother. Good morning. I'm alive. Yeah, first of all, uh, let me express my joy and delight uh, to uh, be here and for the kindness of the church, for Pastor Joe. I don't know if this is kindness or just risking because it's my first time being here. <laughs> it took a risk uh, to have me open the word. I'm so thankful for that. I'm also thankful for uh, my friend uh, uh, Wesley. Oh. Just a little bit. So oh, that, totally. That's okay. So then it's coming. Oh. There we go. Sorry for that. Yeah, I was saying thankful also for friendship of uh, my friend Wes. We've known each other for some years. He's one who introduced me to uh, the church and to uh, Pastor uh, Joe. So it's just. Uh, uh, yeah, just a privilege for me uh, to be here. My name is uh, Newton Chiringuru and I am married uh, to Vanessa and we have uh, three children. She thinks she has four, but I forgive her. <laughs> yeah, uh, we've been married for 12 years and uh, yeah, both of us were born in Malawi. But we both grew up uh, in uh, South Africa. That is where our parents were uh, working. And um, God saved there in 2004. And when I was saved, I was very uh, zealous uh, for the Lord. But uh, sadly, I was uh, involved uh, in uh, churches that I wouldn't call sound, churches uh, that were more like uh, you know, uh, the uh, Word of Faith kind of uh, churches, prosperity uh, learning. So those are the churches I was somehow uh, uh, familiar with until one day I was involved with, uh, with the debate. So the, the person who was in, involved in the debate with me had gone to a solid uh, school. And whenever we say something, we say the Bible says, and me, I'll say, but Crefro Dollar says, you know, called some of, some of the guys that I was uh, uh, following. And I remember this time he just uh, took a verse and stripped the verse. And I'm like, how do you do that? <laughs> then I'm like, whatever you're doing, I want to do what you do. So 
he had actually been to a school that is affiliated to the master's seminary in South Africa. He went to Christ Seminary. Then I said, I want to actually go and get a training you, uh, you got. So God's kindness, I went to a seminary. And that is where for the first time I was introduced even to the doctrines of uh, grace. It really felt like that's when I really got uh, saved. Although I believe I was saved, but I was just not in a healthy church. So that just gave me a passion and desire to be able to reach out even to some people with a solid uh, uh, truth. Because I do believe, I don't know the day we all live what uh, we uh, believe. And uh, thankfully the Lord um, allowed me to be trained there. And since I was in South Africa, there's a good number of churches in South Africa that are committed to preaching the truth, but not the same way I was born in Malawi. So I just felt burdened for some reasons to go back uh, home. So I've been in Malawi now for close to, uh, to eight years, and our church uh, is uh, just uh, over seven years, a Reformation Bible Church. And the reason we call ourselves Reformation Bible Church is because that's what we're trusting the Lord for. We want to see the spread uh, of uh, uh, good biblical-based uh, churches in, uh, in Malawi. So you can be uh, praying for uh, us uh, that uh, the Lord may be able to help us plant small lights across uh, our country uh, of uh, uh, Malawi. So, yeah, there's more to say about me, so I guess... I'll leave the, uh, the rest uh, for a later, but if there's just one thing, just, I just love the Lord Jesus Christ because what he has done for me. I lived a very uh, sinful lifestyle in Johannesburg, but he just opened my eyes to see the glories uh, uh, of uh, uh, Christ and emptiness of the life that I was living. And since then, I know that true life is in Jesus Christ. So I'm just so thankful uh, for that. And maybe this is why Today I'm preaching, I was telling Wes, Psalm 32 happens to be my favorite psalm. So, yeah, maybe that serves as our transition. <laughs> so Psalm 32 uh, is my favorite uh, psalm, and I have titled the message, The Sinner Whose Savior is the Lord. The Sinner Whose Savior is uh, the Lord. So let me uh, read uh, for, I see there's a clock here. Back home we bring the calendar to church. You don't bring the clock. Just to make sure we're still on Sunday. But I've, 40 minutes? 40 minutes? 30, okay, great. So I'll be reading from the ESV, Psalm 32. A masculine of uh, David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. 
Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be kept with bit and bridle, or do not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, O you upright in heart. Let's ask for the Lord's help and blessing. Heavenly Father, I am in desperate need of your help. I pray, Lord, that you help me not to preach God my thoughts, but may you give me the grace, Lord, to say, Lord, what you want me to say for the good of your people, but ultimately for your glory. May you guard us against any distractions. Some of us may have come here, Lord, with burdens. Maybe we have had a difficult week. Maybe there are some concerns. But Lord, I just pray may you may quieten our hearts. May you speak, Lord. Help me, Lord God, to be simple, to be clear, and to be much dependent upon your spirit. I ask that, Lord, you get me out of your way. In Christ's name alone we pray. Amen. The sinner whose savior is the Lord. Now you have to do a double job of uh, listening because last week I was jumping on a train and I asked for help from some lady. She said, you have an accent. <laughs> so yes, it's true. So I hope you'll be wonderful. <laughs> but there are, many, there are many wonderful dimensions to the relationship between God and his people. There is a creator-creature relationship, father-child, deity-worshipper, king-subject relationship, benefactor-beneficiary, master-servant, guide-pilgrim, on and on. But at its most basic level, the relationship between God and man is, ready for this? A sinner-savior relationship. You know why? This is where God and man must first meet. No further relationship is possible until our sins are dealt with. Until we come to know God as our Savior. And because we still sin even after that, the relationship continues at this level. Until the day we see our Savior and we are like him. Now, if someone were to ask you, do you know God in this way? Are you saved? Suppose we were to answer yes. What kind of life? Would you make your yes an unmistakable yes? 
talk is cheap, right? Especially when it comes to Christianity. All people are under the same verdict. We are sinners. But how is a sinner whose Savior is the Lord distinctly different from the one who is not saved? Something still? I don't know what must I do. Must I remove the jacket? No? Yes? Let's try. Let's try. Sorry for that. I'm so, in certain ways, uh, there's different ways how a sinner whose Savior is the Lord may be different from the one who is not saved. But I believe something too gives us one of the Bible's clearest answers to this critical question. Psalm 32 is the first 13 Psalms titled must kill. The word simply means uh, to understand from the Hebrew. And this is a psalm that is specifically designed to instruct us into some important truth. David is this human author and he writes it out of his own lived out experience. And it portrays to us the sinner whose savior is the Lord. His instruction is very practical and close to every Christian's experience. And I agree with those commentators who see this psalm as his background being the, the incident of uh, David and the sin he had with Bathsheba and even what resulted in the death of uh, Uriah. Yes, Psalm 51 is the actual repentance. But in Psalm 51, David promised that he would teach Sinners, his ways. And Psalm 32 is an is a answer, fulfillment to that uh, uh, promise. So what kind of life gives testimony to the fact that there is a sinner-savior relationship going on? If you're a sinner whose savior is the Lord, what kind of life will you lead? Again, here David fulfilling his promise to teach sinners God's ways, David begins in verses 1 and 2 saying, you lead a life characterized by contentment. Contentment. That's verses 1 and 2. Notice how the psalm starts. It starts with pronouncement of happiness, just as someone does all the Beatitudes. This is a picture of the believer filled with contentment in the blessings of salvation. It says, blessed is a man, and that is repeated two times. This is Christian contentment, living in a state of happiness and satisfaction with your life. Now, let's stop there for a moment. There's a notion that the devil likes to plant, that Christianity is something of a, a long first religion. Like somehow to be saved is to be ruined for life. That as a Christians, we don't have fun. That's the devil's lie, of course. The Bible says, blessed or happy is this man. Happy is this woman. And this is a psalm that opens and closes with happiness. I am convinced that God's people are intended to be a happy people. 
But they are not like the world whose happiness is dependent on how much money you have or the connections you have or your status in the world. A Christian's happiness is deeply rooted on some wonderful truths that never change no matter what else is changing. And this is what David is saying here. Because this is a Genesis 3 world. This is a fallen world. This means you and I may at times be called to walk through a valley of afflictions. We may be facing difficulties, be it poor health, financial difficulties, difficult relationships. Think of our brothers and sisters in Ukraine, in Russia, and the surrounding neighbors. Yet in this portrayal of a saved sinner, this is a psalm again that starts and ends with Christian rejoicing. The question is, what are the reasons for this rejoicing? What is the basis of this blessedness? Well, verses 1 to 2 reflect to us this cause of contentment in four ways. First, there's a blessing of pardon. David is saying, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. This is the idea of pardon. What a blessing it is to know that your sins are forgiven. What a joy. What a reason for a happy life. To know that there's nothing that God the Father holds against you. See, the word that is translated here, are forgiven. It's a word that speaks of a removal. It says, blessed is a man whose transgressions have been carried away. It depicts something that I think even somebody of a little imagination can be able to imagine. The idea here is someone who's carrying a huge burden. In this case, it's a burden of guilt. You remember in the Levitical sacrifices that in the sin offering on the Day of Atonement, the high priest will actually come on behalf of the nation. He will place his hands on the head of the sin offering. It was a figurative transfer of the guilt of the nation to a victim. There were actually two victims. One was actually killed, right? Which was a figurative uh, picture of death by precious blood. But the other one was sent to the wilderness never to come again. Now the idea is, was removing the guilt, the burden, the sin of the nation to a victim, carrying it away. Now here's the idea. Blessed is a man, blessed is a woman, whose sin has been lifted from his own shoulders, and whose sin has been placed or transferred upon someone else. Anyone comes to mind? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Friends, this is why Jesus came to carry away our sins. So this is the idea of removal of sin. And the psalmist David is saying, blessed is this man, blessed is this woman. Now when I tell you today, if you or anyone else convinces you that you are happy, that life is great, that the world is wonderful, perhaps because you've got the comfort and conveniences of this life, but yet you are still carrying the burden of sin, I tell you in love, 
The devil has you for a fool. Why? Brothers and sisters, there are no grounds for happiness in the sight of God. No matter how much you have that makes this world smile, until you can say, my sin, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. And Peter said the same, says, the Lord Jesus Christ bore our sins on his body, on a tree. He bore them away. Nothing should bring us contentment in our souls than this thought, that though we are vile sinners, all that we have have done against the thrice holy God in heaven, we are forgiven. This is the only reason for pure bliss. You know, uh, my host in the Tustin, Orange County, they've been giving me eggs and sausage every morning. (laughs) That has been making me happy because I don't usually get that back home. But the happiness David is talking about is not this happiness I've been having of eggs and sausage. It is not dependent on the powerful breakfast, but on bountiful grace, forgiveness. That is the first reason for contentment. But as a second blessing, it is a blessing of atonement. David says, blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven, and he adds, whose sins are covered, whose sin is concealed, whose sin is hidden. What the psalmist again is saying is this. If God can see your sin and see you in your sin, then you're a miserable person. Even if you have got eggs and sausage. But when God looks upon you, if he can see no sin, then you are blessed indeed. But how can it be that sin is so effectively covered from the sight of God that he cannot see it? Certainly not by anything men can do. Remember our first parents, Adam and Eve, when they sinned, what did they try to do? Try to cover it. Did they succeed? So, how can it be that sin is so covered effectively that the eye of God can never see it? Brothers, this leads us to the biblical doctrine of atonement. Again, in the Old Testament tabernacle, you find the Ark of the Covenant. If that was all there was in it, Israel would be doomed. But guess what else was there? There was a mercy seat. It was like a lead against the law of God. It was like a lead that was actually put against the law of God. It speaks of Christ, our atonement sacrifice. Christ, by his own blood, covering our sin. To atone simply means to to cover. And here's the beauty. Sin that has been covered by the blood of Christ cannot be seen by the eye of God. And then David is saying, blessed is this man, blessed is this woman whose sin has been covered. Then there's a third third blessing, verse 2. This is the blessing of justification. It says, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Do you see that? Justification, I love this. Justification teaches me that though I am a sinner in Christ, 
I stand before God justified. But in order to achieve that, justification must have two faces. Like uh, you have coins. Is it a quarter bill? Is it a there's one side and there's two sides. Heads or tails? Heads and tails? One side not counting to side. Another side counting to side. On one hand, God says, sin and guilt that has been carried away and covered under the blood I do not count against my people. This is one of the glories of the gospel. Paul tells us that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. How? By not counting men's sin against them. Now, the other side of justification in this passage is actually worked out by the Apostle Paul in Romans 4. If you have the Bible, please turn briefly with me to Romans chapter number 4. He's explaining now about uh, justification. As he's debating with the Jews, it seems as if the Jews are saying, we are saved by what we do. Paul has been saying we are all guilty. All of us who fall short of the glory of God. There's nobody that seeks after God. That is Romans chapter 3. He's been building his case. And in chapter 4, he's giving an illustration of justification. It seems as if the Jews are saying, okay, Paul, let's bring Abraham. The Jews are like, okay, we're going to get Paul. Because Abraham, our father, was justified by works. And Paul says, are you sure about that? <laughs> then he shows them that Abraham was actually justified, not by works, but by faith. Then he moves from Abraham, he goes to David in Romans chapter number 4, verse 4. Now he says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as a due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Some of you perhaps you have uh, jobs, but I can't imagine at the end of the month, Wesley after he has done all his data analysis, the boss gives him a check and says, brother, here's your gift. What? This is not a gift. But Paul, what Paul is saying here, he's saying the very same thing David says. He speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness from works. Now, Paul is quoting Psalm 32 here, 1 to 2. It says, the Lord counts not sin against this man. Now, here's the, here's the issue. It is true that God does not count sin against his people. If that sin has been covered by the blood, that is wonderful news. That's a reason for happiness, that is a reason for contentment. But Paul is saying that is only half the story. That is just one side of the coin. What that implies and what that necessarily means is that when God does not count you against your sin, because of the blood of Christ, what that does and what that means is he also credits you with the perfect righteousness of his son. If God forgives you of your sin and covers you with the blood of Christ, 
He also credits you with Christ's righteousness. And get this, my friends. It's apart from what you do. It's apart from works. It's totally without works of any kind on your part. And this is something we have to understand because this runs contrary to all of human thought. That many people are trying to inject some level of human activity or human merit in this matter of being accepted of God. Yet there's none. Remember sharing the gospel uh, with uh, somebody I'd known for some years. And he said he was an elder of the church. But I was saying, are you righteous? Can you stand before God and be accepted because of what you do? He says, Newton, I'm 90% righteous. If our happiness, if your acceptance of God were to depend on how well you did anything, you could take the best thing you've ever done or said and say, God, accept me on this best. It's the best of the best of the best that you ever did. Guess what? Even with that, you have to be rejected. Even the best of the best you have done is still tainted with sin. Think of the best thing you've done. I don't know about you, even sometimes in your most holiest moment, when you're praying, even an evil thought can come. Boy, that doesn't happen in America. <laughs> if you have ever loved Christ, have you ever loved him enough? If you have wept over sin, have you wept enough? The reality is this. People have very low views today about the holiness of God. Very low views today about the justice of God. And sadly, they have very high views of their own goodness. Like my friend who said he was 90% holy. When you're believing, even your believing is full of unbelief. When you're repenting, your repenting is tainted with rebellion and selfishness. There's nothing, the point is, there's nothing we do perfectly. And the problem is that none of us will ever be accepted unless we are perfect. And yet none of us are perfect. That's the bad news. But the good news is, at the act of justification, the moment you declare yourself to be a sinner, the good news is, He credits you with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is a great exchange. My sin on Christ. Is this not our only hope? My sin on Christ and his perfect righteousness on me. This is an amazing thing. What a cause for real happiness. The blessing of justification. And lastly, he adds one other thing. Our associated with sanctification. So blessed is a man in whose spirit there is no deceit. Literally no empty show. No hypocrisy. In other words, David is saying, when a man's sins are removed, when a man has been covered by the blood of atonement, when a man has received justifying grace, Blessed or happy is the man who is living in the reality of this salvation. 
One justified should be in the process of, of, of cleansing or becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. Putting off and putting on. Now here, what he has to put off is deceit. He's not living a life of a hypocrite. He's not pretending many people think he's something he's not. You know, pretending as if you have it all together is a denier of the gospel. None of us has it together. And happy and miserable is the one knowing these things yet has got no experience of them. Sovereign grace, understand this. There's no real blessing from God until God's forgiveness is real to you. There's no blessing from God until the atonement of Christ is real to you. There's no real blessing from God until justifying grace is real to you. And when these things are real to you, that's when you can be able to say of Paul, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every circumstance. Notice verses 1 and 2, there's no word for circumstance. In other words, these are things that transcend circumstances. The man who has this sin forgiven, justified, this man can get sick, can lose a loved one, can lose his job, can walk through a valley of affliction. Yes, it may not be pleasant. I believe we're all affected with unpleasant circumstances. But if David is saying anything, he's saying, our happiness does not depend on circumstances, but on some inner spiritual, our inner spiritual realities that never change, no matter what else is changing. In fact, it is usually in life's most difficult times that this contentment is most real in a Christian's life. I don't know if you're aware, last year I was in prison for three months. It was the most difficult time. I was involved in a car accident. But I had to remember the Lord. He's a good God. You know, whatever is going on, our sins are forgiven. We are under the blood. All that Jesus Christ did to please God has been credited into my account. It is as if I did it myself. What a great cause for contentment. That's the sinner whose Savior is the Lord. He really life characterized by contentment. But let's now move faster. Let's just start praying for him. What is this African doing now? It's going to be faster. <laughs> if you're a sinner whose Savior is the Lord, David says, you lead a life characterized not only by contentment in salvation, but also confession of sin. That's verses 3 to 7. The way to contentment passes along the way of confession. There can be no contentment in salvation without confession of sin. Notice how he puts in verse number uh, 3. It says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. There are some commentators who said verse 3 and 4, these are symptoms of severe depression. David committed a terrible sin, adultery and murder, yet he kept quiet for over a year. Maybe to help us just appreciate, there are two kinds of forgiveness in God. There is judicial forgiveness 
and there's parental forgiveness. Judicial forgiveness views God as a judge. God looks down and says, you have broken my law. You are guilty. There's got to be judgment. But on the basis of my son's death, he bore your sin. He took your guilt. He paid the debt. The price is paid. I declare you to be forgiven. This is judicial act. Full, complete, positional. Past, present, future, sins, forgiven. When does that happen? The moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ. The moment you are born again. That is verses 1 and 2. We have seen that in verses 1 and 2. But for the Christian who has been judicially forgiven, there is still the ongoing need for confession, and that is parental forgiveness. So if parental forgiveness, we're not dealing with God as a moral judge, we're dealing with God as a loving father. Even though we have been judicially forgiven, do we still sin? And when we sin, something happens in our relationship to God. The relationship does not end, but something is lost. That is, when I have a conflict with my son, does not mean he ceases to be my son, but something is missing. The joy of the relationship, the intimacy of the relationship, all that the relationship can be, and that is what we are seeing here, verses 3 to 7. Before we turn to Psalm 32, let me illustrate this from Psalm 51. Here's David. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, but he fell into a terrible sin of murder, and he orchestrated uh, the, uh, you know what happened? He orchestrated the murder of Uriah after he committed adultery of Bathsheba. David, in his prayer, affirms his salvation that God is still his savior in Psalm 51. He says, God is still there. But even in affirming that the judicial forgiveness is there, David can't help but feel the loss of something in that relationship. And he prays in Psalm 51 verse 8, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Safety he is, but you know what is missing? There's no joy. He did not lose his salvation. I don't believe you can lose your salvation. But the joy of that salvation. See, judicial forgiveness takes care of the fact of salvation, but parental forgiveness takes care of the joy of the salvation. I can be forgiven, but if I'm sinful and unrepentant and unforgiving in that forgiveness, I fulfill the joy and the fullness of that relationship. That's the issue. Judicial forgiveness is once off. Parental forgiveness needs to happen every day. Now, David in verses 3 and following, he's taking us back to the past. He says, when I kept silent, he's reflecting now to the darker days. Terrible and wicked sin he committed. On he went. Is it not amazing? The things sometimes Christians can do, yet keeping up, keeping up a good show, as if all is well. But there's something that happens. They are cut off from fellowship of God. They realize that even when we are living in sin, it affects the collective. Have you ever had great times while holding on to sin? Are you excited about sharing your faith when you're living in sin? 
Let me ask you this. Are you holding on to sin and refusing to repent or confess? Are you being silent? Because you are unwilling to take an honest look at your heart? But I want to tell you this. As long as God's people are not willing to face up to their sin, we're going to rob ourselves of the blessing and the joy and the peace and the happiness that rightly belongs to a child of God. This is why we need to be a people that are continuously coming before God and confessing our sin. But look at verse 5. We reach a turning point in verse 5. The deathly silence is broken. David says, I acknowledge my sin to you and did not cover my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgression to the Lord. Listen to this. Whether you're an unsaved person, miserable because of unconfessing, or a Christian with unconfessing, the greatest thing you can say in the world is to come to God and say, Lord, I acknowledge my sin. I'm not going to hide it anymore. Here comes a man after God's own heart. And he says, Lord, I know. And I acknowledge my sin. There it is. He brings it in the open. I'm not going to try to hide it anymore. Now remember, David is not like Newton, who is known only here by Pastor Joe and West, two people. He's the king of Israel. Everyone will know. But notice, he confesses sin. And the Bible says, and you forgive. Is there anything sweeter than that? For the Christian who has lost out of God? Notice the application of verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. There's nothing godly for someone who has been forgiven by God to come to God again and ask for forgiveness as from a loving father. There's a way back for every backslider. I love the words of the beginning of 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. It says, And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. If anybody sins, and who of us does not? Verse 7 is a happy ending, where we find ourselves surrounded with songs that sing of God's deliverance. For the sin our Savior is the Lord. His way is a way of confession. Verse 7, let's talk about how God delivers from all that. We should time to expound on that. But confession is also a commitment for sex sin. It is one thing to get out of trouble. It is another thing to live a godly life. David is well aware that even when sin has been forgiven, sin still waits secretly like a lion to devour us. So when we have fallen and gotten up again, how do we keep standing? The answer, my friends, is blowing in the wind of David's final instruction, verses 8 to 11. The speaker now is actually the Lord himself. And he says, in effect, if you are a sinner whose Savior is the Lord, you will lead a life characterized by not only contentment and confession, but ultimately conformity. Conformity to what? Society? Conformity to the scripture. To conform simply means to comply. And here's some news flash. Contentment in salvation is a lie without confession of sin. And both are a lie without conformity to scripture. Because this authenticates everything. When sin has been confessed and cleansed, 
it must be conquered. Look at verse 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel, I will guide you with my eye upon you. Where does God instruct, teach, counsel, and guide us from? Scripture. The Bible is full of principles that if practiced or lived out, will keep us from making foolish and sinful choices. Let's keep our Bibles open and God will make it plain what we are to do. Let's conform to Scripture and not make Scripture conform to our sinful presupposition. I was just blessed when Wes told me Pastor Joe is committed to exposition preaching. And when you do that, sometimes growth of the church may be painful slow. Because people want to just come and be told whatever they want to, to hear. I'm told here now you can choose whether, like me, I can just wake up and choose whether I'm a man or a woman. Is that so? Well, we need to remind our people things like that, that in the beginning God created a male and female. Period. You cannot choose. You can choose to disobey. You can choose to disobey his creation design. But that is always done at your own hurt, at your own peril. This is just a sheer, this is just sheer rebellion and stubbornness. That's what verse 9 is warning us. It says, do not be like a horse or a mule which has no understanding, which must be controlled or kept by bill and bridle or they will not come to you. This is a sign of stubbornness. This is one of the things that get us into trouble. We get so stiff naked. But here we want not to be like a donkey, refusing to move or kicking and bucking to get your own way. But the question is, where does this stubbornness come from? Verse 9 says, no understanding. We need to let our scriptures open. Conform to the scriptures. And the only cure for stubbornness is the accurate massaging instruction of God's word. God's word, God's word alone, gives understanding that loosens the stiffness. If we throw away the understanding of scripture, we're going to fall. That's what the Lord is warning. How is your reading of the Bible? Have you noticed that the Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to the person whose life isn't? And the Lord's warning is reinforced in verse 10. There are consequences both ways. It says, many are the sorrows or woes of the wicked. But the Lord's unfailing love surrounds who? The one who trusts in the Lord. Let's be a bit practical here. How does it look like to trust in the Lord? One word, obedience. Obedience. Doing what his word instructs. Whether it is easy or not, that's the point of submission. You do it whether it is easy or not. Verse 10, sin, my brothers and sisters, has terrible consequences. It brings sorrow to the wicked and it brings sorrow to the backslider. Simply put, sin complicates life. It promises much but never delivers. Well, no, sin does deliver. According to the passage, it delivers sorrows. David was depressed in verses 3 and 4. 
But thankfully, he came to own up to his sin. But verse 11 concludes everything beautifully for us. It says, Rejoice, oh, be glad in the Lord, you righteous, or oh, you justified ones. Sing, oh, you are upright in heart. See, brothers and sisters, justification and sanctification are two different things. But you never have one without the other. Just as you can't have the sun without the ray. Someone who has been justified is someone who longs to be sanctified. That's Psalm 32. How it comes close to every Christian's experience as it portrays the sinner whose Savior is the Lord. It leaves you reminded that if Jesus is your Savior, your daily life reflects that in at least three ways. Contentment in salvation, an accompanying confession of sin, and ultimately conformity to Scripture. I trust you take a moment to find where you stand before the Lord in these matters. If you are a Christian with unconfessed sin, there's no better time, no better place to get the right of God. It's time to seek the Lord. If you are not a Christian, make sure today you come to Christ while he may be found. Because it might be too late. Free from sin. Free to Christ. Before you find yourself in eternal and happiness. Or you keep looking for happiness in all the wrong places. And Jeremiah says, that's like putting a hole in a tin. It doesn't hold any water. Whoever you are, wherever you are, seek the Lord. In Christ there is forgiveness. Receive it by faith. Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. No greater offer has been given to you. And there will be no excuses because you'll be reminded that the babble of an accent from Malau came. Let's pray. Father, I can only reach the ears of your people. But I pray, Lord, you may take these truths and cement them in our hearts. I pray, Lord, that the evil one will not snatch this truth, but help us, Lord, to be a people that find our contentment in salvation. And to be a people, Lord God, that are owning up to our sins, confessing our sins, and striving, Lord, to live a holy life. May we be a people, Lord, that are conforming to your word. Father, do what only you can do with this word. And ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.